Hello, friends, and welcome to episode five of Night Rule. I was extremely pleased to get a chance to talk in depth with uh, Professor Adnan Hussein of Queen's University. Um, we talked uh, to a large extent about Sufism and uh, the tradition of religious pilgrimage contained within it before touching on kind of the intersection between the political and the spiritual a little bit and, and hitting on a few other topics. It was uh, a very, very intriguing discussion for me personally. Um, having been exposed to Sufism much earlier in life, it was it was a lot of fun to get to revisit it a bit and talk about it with someone who's uh, very learned and very eloquent and who can offer really unique insights pertaining to it. So um, today we will have an intro from Ryuchi Sakamoto. We'll be listening to about 90 seconds of Das Neue Japanese Elektronische Volkslied, which translates as the new Japanese electronic folk song. And our outro will be from Taiko Anuki and Ryuchi Sakamoto. The name of this track is Carnival. So for tonight's Carnival, please get yourself very comfortable. Uh, prepare for all manners of distractions, diversions, and discussions. And uh, without any further ado, please enjoy the show. think starting this podcast for me was is a good project just to kind of continue the fun and expand it out into other areas and other realms of discourse and discussion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so let's uh let's get started welcome everybody hello and we're glad you could join us for night rule i'm joined by professor adnan hussein of queen's university he's a professor of medieval mediterranean and islamic history um you said you were the the head of what was what was the change? Uh, the School of Religion. I recently ah. became director of the School of Religion at Queens. Does that come with any kind of like religious garb or access to uh, any like alas. sacred texts? <laughs> alas, no. It's just an administrative role. But I agree with you. I think it should I should be invested with high honors, robes, scepters, orbs. You know, I I would love to have a throne to sit on. You know, it would be fun. But unfortunately, it just means that I do a lot of paperwork. Mm, mm, mm. 
That's a shame because yeah, you definitely look good in, in a, on a throne with like a, a tall hat, I think, or some something. Maybe maybe one of these days we can we can get that going. We'll crowdfund it. Yes. Um, so I wanted. To, I mean, there's so many things I'd love to talk to you talk with you about. Um, so many things going on. Um, but I, I have been super curious for a while to kind of learn a little bit more about your your academic background and, and what you studied and written on, uh, particularly to do with uh, kind of medieval mystic traditions, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is one way to term it. Um, I think there's kind of a pretty monolithic conception of a lot of medieval religion in people's minds. And even just mysticism in general is something that I don't think is very well understood. Um, I was fortunate enough in my youth to be exposed to uh, Sufism for a while, um, but mm. maybe we could we could we could kick off and talk about that because I find it to be a really fascinating tradition. I know you've not only studied it, but um, you have a, a personal connection to it as well through your family, right? Yes, that's that's right. Yes, my first encounters with it were not academic or originally; um, they were stories about my grandfather who um, was a dervish, that is somebody who was dedicated to the mystical path in the Islamic mystical tradition of Sufism, and usually involves um, a lot of retreat from the world, travel from place to place, uh, visiting you know, holy sacred places, and engaged in a life of asceticism. And um, he was from my mother's family is from uh, their Tajiks, so their Central Asian, the Persian-speaking uh, community in Central Asia. Uh, they have their own dialect. It's one of the dialects of Persian. There's Farsi, Dari, and Tajik. And they um, were ethnic Tajiks, but they came from a very mixed region that is now part of Uzbekistan um, called the Fergana Valley, and it's on the Silk Route and they were silk farmers and landowners. And at a certain point, for some reason, um, he uh, had conflicts with uh, his family and he decided to leave everything and abandon everything and go on the mystic path, travel uh, as a Sufi dervish. And uh, he was a Naqshbandi dervish, which is a particular order or brotherhood uh, or tradition within Sufism. There are many different uh, groups. This is one group that is um, based really, it's a global and worldwide one. It's spread uh, far and wide, but it really began in Central Asia. So it's from that kind of region. And he traveled around uh, the Persian world, the Middle East, uh, went to uh, the holy places in the Arabian Peninsula, the Hijaz, for the great pilgrimage. Mecca and Medina, and um, supported himself uh, sharpening knives, going from uh, village to village, um, uh, sharpening knives, supporting himself, and participating in the network, uh, the social network of Sufi hospices and um, convents, you could call them, um, places where you could stay, um, have a hot meal, engage in the mystic uh, traditions and Sufi rituals. So it, it's some, I heard stories about him through my mother, um, and uh, we also became more involved in this tradition. So I was sort of surrounded by it uh, 
from a not an academic way, but just a kind of casual acquaintance uh, with the larger traditions and some of the values and some of the practices uh, of it. Very fascinating. So, like, at what point in his life was he doing this this religious pilgrimage and all this stuff? Was this before he settled down and had a family, or afterwards? Yeah, it's sort of in you know probably his twenties, late young adulthood, you know. Um, but it was a long period of time, you know, 12 years, and um, he visited lots of different places, and there are so many different shrines. Now, this is, it's interesting because Sufism is a bit of a mystery, as you mentioned, you know, it's not that well known. Um, and even among Muslims, uh, in modern, in the modern period, there's been so much disruption, um, and as a result of colonialism and modernity and, um Western forms of education that displaced earlier traditions, the religion changed quite a lot in the late 19th and through the course of the 20th centuries. And one of the big changes and developments was this modernist, um, revivalist, reformist tradition that really is fairly fundamentalist in the sense that it wanted to do away with that medieval and early modern um, tradition and folk practices and try and get back to the pure, so-called pure religion of just what you find in the text. So it's a lot, uh, some people characterize these reformist traditions as a little bit like Protestantism, you know, getting rid of all of that Catholic saint uh, uh, worship and the sacraments and the clerical hierarchies and the individual believer going back to the source texts um, and those alone. So something kind of similar was start, starting to happen. And so it meant that there was a lot of antipathy in some sense to the Sufi or spiritual or mystical traditions within Islam because it was seen as irrational and unscientific, unmodern, superstitious. Um, and we're, we're, we're talking about this in the realm of religion, though. I mean, unscientific. Yes. Well, but this is the thing. I mean, people thought that this was innovation and corruption of the true religion and that one of the reasons why the Muslim world, for example, was being subjugated by colonialism, was fragmented politically and was weak was because they had lost the true religion. And if they could get back to that, then they might be able to revive themselves socially, you know, intellectually, spiritually, morally, and economically, and thus politically. So, you know, there was this idea that, you know, um, purging from all of these accretions and superstitious uh, practices um, that you could get to a, a, a core religion that would be compatible in some sense with modernity. I think that was sort of the idea. It's a sort of immodern modernity, right? It's a modernist form of religion. And so as a result, it meant that there were generations where um, understanding about Sufism and these traditions were suppressed or marginalized if they weren't actually outright suppressed in you know direct violent terms, which is what happened, for example, in Saudi Arabia under the Wahhabi movement that actually really, you know, suppressed, destroyed shrines and and outlawed these kinds of practices and so on. Um, but at, what it meant is that uh, people were disconnected a little bit with some of these traditions themselves. And um, 
lost the the understanding that it used to be interwoven into the fabric of society and that the um, mystical or spiritual orientation of Islam that we call this tradition of Sufism was actually extremely widespread. In fact, you know, most people were connected in some loose way with the spiritual and religious culture of the mystical path. Um, so in some sense, even Muslims, it's not known in, that much in the West, but even Muslims themselves, uh, you know, have a lot of questions and find it all sort of mysterious. What is this tradition? And it's a, um, you know, rediscovery for many people in the contemporary world to know that there is this very profound and vibrant spiritual tradition within their religion. It's, it's surprising to me because it seems to me that, I mean, even just as a casual observer, someone who's been exposed to it only a little bit, like primarily through um, Conference of the Birds, which I know is one of the major texts within Sufism. Mm. So as a tradition, it seems to me extremely, I mean, when you think about your grandfather going on that pilgrimage and moving from place to place, um, you know, like even metaphorically, like that's like you're, as you move through the world and you meet different people and, and have different experiences, you're kind of you're sharpening yourself like the world is, is the wet is the whetstone and you're, mm -hmm. you're going to be connected to the world. There's an engagement there that's not it's not as though it's entirely esoteric and um, kind of all about retreat from the world. It seems like, you know, going on having that kind of experience is going to lead to a greater engagement with the world. Um, so it's kind of ironic to me that it would be considered to be kind of, you know counterproductive or like antisocial? Well, that that's interesting. I mean, there was always a tension. I mean, I think if you look at the mystical traditions across all religions and various spiritual orientations, that there can be a tendency that very often disenchantment with the world leads to this turn within, inwardly to the spirit and away from the from the material, like this is like the classic sort of spirit versus matter, right? You know, body versus, you know, flesh versus the spirit, the carnal versus the spiritual, these yeah. sort of dichotomous divisions. And, you know, very often um, in the history of religions, we observe that uh, some people become disgusted with the corruption of the world and see it as a barrier to true knowledge of themselves and knowledge of God, and so they retreat from it, at least for a period of time, to uh, exercise and wrestle with oneself, right? And, you know, there is, for example, a um, dictum uh, um, in the Sufi tradition that comes from a hadith, a statement of the prophet Muhammad, uh, to know yourself is to know your Lord, right? Man arafa nafsahu faqad arafa rabbahu. So, there's some kind of idea that inwardly the human beings have a spiritual connection that goes beyond the material world. And so you need to find a proper relationship to this dunya or material existence that doesn't distract you. This is a very platonic kind of idea as well, that, you know, this world of forms isn't really real. The only true reality is you know, that spiritual reality, the beingness, you know, of, of God. And so it can lead some people to devalue the world, reject the world, renounce the world in order to turn and free themselves from its grip in order to ascend, you know, using these metaphors, they're often ascent, right, to, um, you know, the world of light or something like this. Mm -hmm. However, a lot of Sufis believed, and particularly if you think about Islam, 
is a very social religion. In fact, you know, for many people to talk about Islam in these spiritual and mystical terms would seem like a real anomaly because the impression that many people have in the West, and as I said, shared by many modern contemporary Muslims, is that it's a religion of law and of social order and regulation, of practices, of performance of religious practices, duties, obligations that are, you know, the, the sort of fundamental, you know, aspect of it, much like uh, Jewish uh, religious law, the halakha, is central, right? It doesn't mean, however, that there aren't these devotional and pietistic and spiritual streams. It's just that people consider that this legal dimension of proper observance is what's dominant and characteristic about the religion. And of course, there is a Christian sort of perspective on these other religions that values the spirit versus the letter and characterizes Judaism and Islam as religions of the law or the letter, whereas Christianity is this religion of the spirit and is mystical in its, in its, in its nature. So sometimes people might think, wow, how, you know, where is all this coming from, you know, in, in Islam? But in fact, um, of course, there is this strong spiritual dimension and orientation, but because it was a religion that was concerned with society, with community, uh, and so on, there was a tension between those mystics who wanted to withdraw from the world and reject it, and those who thought, well, that's a stage in the mystical path, but the full realization of your human potential is to connect yourself with the divine, to experience what was called Fana, fana fillah, or um, uh, absorption of the individual sense of self into the oneness with God, right? The sense of oceanic immersion in, you know, the spiritual being of the world, right? And loss of a sense of self and one's separate identity, you know, out of that mm -hmm. universal. That experience is a powerful, ecstatic experience that all the mystics and all the different religions, you know, whether Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, you know, the traditions that I'm most familiar with, they all talk about this kind of ecstatic union with the divine, right? The mystical union with the divine, where you lose a sense of your individual self in absorption with something greater, more universal. But some other mystics said, no, that's one stage of the whole mystical path. Um, and it's, you know, not the final stage at all. The, a, a much higher position is actually the return when you return back to yourself and in this worldly existence. But you do so in a way that doesn't lose that connection with the divine, but actually transforms your being in this world in some way. That's what's called baqa or the subsistence with God. So after the fana, the annihilation of self into God, there is this idea of subsistence in or with God, even after your return to consciousness of yourself as a separate being in your normal social and material world. Um, and that that was considered the real uh, balance and the real test, you know, was whether you uh, could still be contemplating God, having a connection with God, having that realization of your spiritual um, being while still functioning as a member of society, but now in a way that, that, that didn't cut you off, that the material world was no longer just a barrier between you and a spiritual or higher realization of self. 
Right. It's fascinating to me on, on many levels. It definitely echoes for me the, um, the Bhagavad Gita and mm. um, elements of Hinduism and Buddhism and that, that debate about kind of renunciation of the world versus participation in it. Um, and I, I, to me, I feel like that's ultimately a core um, argument made by the Bhagavad Gita in, in terms of, you know, having that spiritual realization, but then going back and, and engaging in the world in a different way. Um, right. Now, it's interesting to me because I feel as though, like there's, when we look at the, the current context, I, I, I want to go back uh, and talk about the history of Sufism more, but first, like, when you look at, at people's spirituality and how it affects their kind of political participation, mm. um, I think we probably see a lot, a lot more fundamentalism and a lot more kind of intractability um, in things like the religious right in America or, um, you know, a lot of elements of, say, political Islam in the Islamic world right now. Right. I mean, now, political Islam is obviously something we've arrived at after, you know, a long period of uh, imperialism, colonialism and wars and, and all manner of things. So we certainly don't want to talk about it outside of that context. But um, I mean, I would I, I, I certainly would hope that at some point traditions that that are more there's there's a selflessness to this tradition we're talking about within Sufism. It's, it's not about proselytizing. It's not about. Um, at least to me, it doesn't seem as though it's about, you know, uh, kind of inflicting your views on others necessarily. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. I think a lot of, of the intersection of politics and religion right now is, is really about things like proselytization and a real political project to, um, you know, that is much more divisive. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I think, um, I think you're right that the modern forms of, you know, religion and politics, and you could say also in the Islamic world, political Islam, as you're mentioning, um, you know, that these attempts to pattern the social world and, you know, by means of the state or politics, obviously create all kinds of conflict. Um, and that you can characterize a difference that the you know it's not that the sufis are uninterested in the world and in fact actually what i would say is that you know one value that i learned very much in my um sort of family tradition um is the idea of service to humanity and this is something that was always part of organized sufi groups and movements is that they always had this charitable kind of function where you know, people in the neighborhood, there's a Thursday night or a Saturday night or the classic uh, uh, periods for when you would have some collective gathering to perform uh, zikr, remembrance or invocation of God uh, in some collective ritual fashion, you know, chanting. Sometimes it involved um, a sort of spiritual dance or music, uh, definitely always had rhythmic movements or breathing and collective recitation and chanting. So that would be a moment where people would come together for spiritual remembrance. Um, and it would also then be accompanied by a big meal that anyone could come and be invited. And so there was this sort of sense of hospitality, of feeding the stranger, of helping people in your 
society, uh, doing charitable good works and service. And that service was a sacrifice, a form of discipline and training to learn humility and to learn that we are all you know, fundamentally equal and that our situations may be, may be different from you know, the observed uh, perspective of somebody who seems to be a real religious, uh, prominent religious adherent, uh, a religious scholar or something like like this, having a high religious status doesn't necessarily uh, tell you about the inner reality that you might find somebody who apparently is poor or humble or even uh, transgressing the religious law, and yet they might have inwardly, you know, great spiritual riches, and so that you don't judge people on these uh, external forms, but you serve humanity, right? So this was always something that was very important in the social tradition historically um, and so on. So it's not that um, there was no outward engagement with the rest of society, but the ethics by which you approach that is not to impose, you know, a rule of order on others, but actually to see in others their humanity and the divine spark that is in everyone and to serve that. Um, and so you're right that Sufism and that tradition um, has accommodated and tolerated difference. And that's the reason why it's spread so, so far and wide beyond central Islamic lands historically. You know, it's really through the Sufis that um, Islam spread to Central Asia, among the Turkic tribes, to um, South Asia, um, Southeast Asia, uh, mm -hmm. these trading diasporas that went into Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, you know, that there are a lot of stories, for example, about Sufi dervishes who went into the Indian subcontinent during the period of the Delhi Sultanate or in the Mughal, you know, empire, and that it's really... Um, they who attracted many uh, conversions and that they didn't particularly care about the conversion of, of, of others and that there are some famous Chishti sheikhs, for example, in India, like Nizamuddin Awliya in Delhi, whose um, hospice was attended by Hindus as well as uh, Muslims. And uh, they looked at him as a guru, you know, at the same time as that he was a Sufi sheikh or a master. And so these experience of interreligious contact through Sufism were possible because the spiritual orientation within this tradition saw truth and reality beyond the appearances, the external appearances of people's practices um, to the inner realities that are shared in these religious traditions of trying to connect you with something greater than yourself that is actually also within yourself. So I think you're right that the Sufi approach is one that always accommodated a diversity of paths and orientations and of religious uh, difference. Um, there are many who consider that, you know, uh, transcend, you know, uh, transcendent truth is uh, behind all the religious traditions. So somebody like Rumi, uh, the very famous Jalaluddin Rumi, a 13th century uh, Persian poet who lived uh, in um, uh, Konya in Anatolia, um, you know, would say, I'm neither, you know, Muslim, Christian, or Jew, right? Um, you know, it's poetic uh, speech. Obviously, he was a Muslim, was a practicing Muslim, as known to have been. But what he was saying 
is that what he's after and the kind of experience of real genuine truth goes beyond just narrow views of the rightness of this particular practice and identity versus others. And so he was encouraging, uh, and he was of course also living in a multi-religious society, you know, where there were Christians, Muslims, and Jews, and varieties of each of these, you know. Um, none of them are monoliths. And uh, so what he was encouraging was um, people to go beyond these uh, external forms to try and find um, the truth that is universal to all these traditions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely fascinating, even for someone such as myself. Like, I'm very interested in the history of religion and spirituality and spiritual writing, although I'm not really a religious adherent myself, per se. Um, but I did want, before we move on from Sufism, because my main exposure to it was the fantastic uh, Conference of the Birds, mm-hmm. which I, I ended up getting exposed to in high school. And uh, I wanted to since you since i have you here before we move on to maybe some more contemporary stuff i wanted to maybe ask you to give our listeners maybe an elevator pitch about that uh that work and maybe the context a little bit of the context where it came from and and uh why they should maybe check it out if they're just interested in you know the great works of the great writings out there in history well i think you might be um uh, have a unique perspective and be better able to characterize the work having um, participated in this play, which I think is just absolutely a fantastic uh, mm. project. But, you know, I can give some of the uh, larger context, which is just that it was uh, a mystical work, so a work, an allegory, a spiritual allegory of journey that was written by Fariduddin Attar, who was a 13th century um Persian Sufi uh, mystic, and it's um, a story of a journey by birds who are after a mystical place called Mount Kaf. They want to arrive there and um, see the Simur, you know, um, which is this uh, mystical, mythical uh, bird um, that they consider, you know, their their lord. They want to um, uh, have a direct uh, experience and contact, you know, with the Seymour, right? And um, they go on this journey and they have all kinds of, it's a little bit like a pilgrim's progress, you know, there mm-hmm. are different stages to the journey and there are challenges at each at each stage. And it's actually, I think, can see why it would make a very good play is because you've got these different moments that are very sort of set pieces, you know, with the dialogue and the discussion. And mm. in the end, they realize that Simur also means 30 birds and that they are the 30 birds that have gone on this journey. And so even though they've traveled, what they've done is also um, explored themselves within. And so it's both this inner exploration as well as this journey towards something outside of you that is connected in, the, in this allegorical uh, sort of fable. Yeah, and the language is is incredibly poetic, incredibly beautifully done. I think the characterizations are also, honestly, it might sound a little strange, but I feel like kind of modern to me, just in mm. terms of how kind of deep the analysis is of, of human beings and behavior and personalities and the illusions one might have, the preoccupations or obsessions that, that might occupy one's mind to the detriment of, of higher pursuits. So, yeah, that, um, that's a... I think you're right on there with that because, um, in fact, actually the whole journey of the soul or of the self is um, this relationship to overcome the divided self, as it were. You know, then Sufi metaphysical psychology, and I think we could call it psychology, um, you have uh, 
the spirit and the soul, the carnal soul that is connected with the, you know, desires, uh, material desires, but also these emotional reflexes of selfishness or arrogance or um, attachment or yes, exactly. Attachment, that kind of those sorts of qualities that we have naturally. And the whole purpose of um, Sufi psychology, as it were, is to find the right balance between these elements so that we can be fully human and achieve the spiritual uh, qualities that we all that we all have. So it's the disciplining of the nafs, this carnal soul, in order to allow a proper balance for the ruh or the spirit, um, um, you know, to flourish. That's kind of the task. And I think you're right to characterize it as having psychological insight about different personalities and qualities um, in human experience uh, that are, you know, the texture really of the actual task of Sufism, right? I talked more about it on a theoretical level, and we could also talk about theosophy and cosmology and the way in which they see the world. But really, fundamentally, what it comes down to are the practices and trainings uh, involved with trying to overcome those personality um, challenges that we all have, you know, of anger, of losing our temper, of, you know, acting in selfish ways, of being anxious about the future, all, all these, what we would call in maybe modern spiritual parlance, these negative energies, right, you know, mm-hmm. that that we have, is trying to control and put those into balance, because it's not that you can eliminate them, but if they can be subordinated or arranged in a proper way, so that we can be healthy and in balance, that's the, the goal and task, just as it is of modern spiritual spirituality or of psychoanalysis. Likewise, Sufism had this rich sense of trying to put people into a proper balance yeah i think it, it really echoes a lot of other things i really enjoy like there it reminds me that a lot of the characters in it remind me of Chekhov characters in that they're depicted fully with all their inherent absurdities and contradictions but it's in a very it's almost it's still a loving portrayal it's almost as though mm-hmm. the the storyteller is not putting themselves above this person they're just um they're trying to really go as deep as they can into what the kind of elements of human human behavior and nature are. Um, and, and for sure, like there's 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 echoes of to a lot of psychology, I think, as well. Um, I definitely I should reread it because it's been probably about 20 years. And I know a lot of my high school friends, if they happen to listen to this, will be will be itching to reread it as well, because we did. Yeah, there were 30 of us in that play. It was pretty remarkable. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I know we only, I only have you for about another 15 minutes here, so I wanted to switch it up. I was uh, looking at the topics we kind of floated, and, and one jumped out to me that I thought would be interesting to hit on. It certainly has a lot more, uh, definitely has also contemporary uh, implications. Uh, can you talk to me about um, the intersections between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and what you've been thinking about regarding that lately? Oh, well, that, yeah, that's a very interesting and big topic, but, um, uh, we can do, we can do part two in a couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Um, well, I guess I've been thinking about it just because it's in a lot of contemporary discourse right now, what's been happening in the UK and even here in Ontario recently, there was 
um, an effort to adopt as part of the Human Rights Code of Ontario, uh, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of anti-Semitism with its associated examples, which was controversial because a lot of the examples deal with uh, State of Israel and seem to make it uh, very difficult to criticize Israel um, you know, without it being considered uh, and a form or a species of anti-Semitism. So it's been in the news and I've been thinking a little bit uh, about it, uh, but my interest in the subject uh, goes much deeper because I have felt that in my study of medieval history that anti-Jewish and anti-Muslim um, prejudice or sentiment or you know hostility to and even a sense of rivalry with these religions really intersected and that there are common roots in a way uh, of if we think of the roots of anti-Semitism being in medieval pogroms, um, the blood libel kind of myths and um, you know the negative stereotypes and characterizations of of Jews that uh, were part of uh, medieval European culture uh, that in fact actually they have a real symmetry with and interconnection with anti-Muslim or the, what they called the Saracens um, in their parlance um, and that in fact actually there's a dynamic relationship between the two where the um, Jews were internal enemies of Christian society and um, you know, were a kind of religious uh, problem, as it were, for uh, Christian society to deal with. Um, and the Muslims were a kind of external, religious and political, really a political and military sort of rival. Um, and that very often there was an association between um, the Jews and the Muslims, both as enemies of Christendom and, uh, and of Christ, but of uh, working together. You know, there was this idea that they were actually in league with one another in um, the uh, paranoid imagination, you might say, of polemical discourse. Um, and since that time, which I think was something of a crucible for establishing certain patterns of relations with religious minorities, and, um, I, I think that that intimate connection has continued up until pretty much the modern period where we often think that Jews and Muslims are very hostile with one another and, um, you know, uh, that this relationship, there couldn't be a connection between Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, that they're very different. But in fact, I think that is only a very recent uh, perception of the situation. Um, that has to do with the foundation of, of, you know, the modern state of Israel and, and so on. But that is a much more recent um, wrinkle in the relationship, you might say, but that the long history actually is of intimate association and connection in the view of, of Christian society. And so I'm interested in how this manifests in are present where we've seen a revival, you might say, of the intersections and interconnections between uh, the Jew and the Muslim. In, for example, if you think of the Tree of, tree of Life uh, synagogue, um, you know, killings, the the, mm -hmm. the uh, terrible attack on that uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh. Um, 
by a yeah, kind I, of I, I know Muslim leaders were among the first to um, to offer support and speak out, right? Oh, yes, they certainly were. Um, and I myself went to uh, uh, our local synagogue with uh, others uh, from the Muslim community to, you know, show solidarity and, um, you know, uh, but what I'm thinking is that the part of the motivation of, um, and I don't remember the person's name, uh, who was involved, but uh, part of the motivation that I, I saw in some of the documentation and some of the writings of this disturbed individual, but I would not want to put it all on, you know, individual perturbation. This is obviously part of a shared discourse of white supremacy that brings in their imagination an association between Jews and Muslims, because one of the reasons why this particular synagogue was attacked is because it was um, um, a place where there was sponsorship of Syrian refugees, for example. There is a refugee organization um, since, uh, you know, the need to relocate Jewish refugees um, after World War II that was created and subsequently has continued to work on behalf of refugee uh, settlement and aid subsequently and was involved with attempting to sponsor Syrian refugees. And so there is this kind of idea that the Jews are somehow uh, helping bring these radical Islamic uh, you know, terrorists into um, the United States. And so we have to defend against them. So there's this association again that reminds me so much of the medieval period. And I think the reason why it's possible to make these associations because they were formed and forged in a way um, influentially uh, in, the, in the medieval period. Not that there's some direct continuity, but that it's available, you might say, in the culture as a pattern, an association, a way of thinking uh, that has deep uh, roots. What do you think is the, the biggest barrier to kind of, for lack of a better term, some kind of ecumenical um, left tradition politically? I mean, there's definitely that that's something that exists right now. I, I mean, I think it, it'll probably continue to grow. But um, do you think that that's something that that will have that has a bright future or is that is that something that might have some struggles going forward? Well, ecumenical in what sense of uh, on religious grounds of interfaith? Uh, no, on, on like social and political grounds, like I guess maybe that's mm. the wrong word. Um, yeah, because I guess ecumenical technically means bringing all the religions together. But I, I more yeah. mean these kind of alliances to um, work for kind of the betterment of, of and, and further the social good generally among uh, kind of, say, more liberal religious traditions. And, and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I'm always uh, hopeful um, because I think um, fundamentally at root, uh, the ethics that motivate people who are truly religious, and I don't mean... Um, in the identitarian way, but uh, try and think ethically about what their tradition religiously and spiritually calls them to, uh, that these are very, very common and compatible. So if we can focus more on the ethical obligations that we feel we have rather than the identitarian um, sort of um, understanding of, of you know, these traditions, then I think we're, you know, more likely to be able to forge some 
kind of collaborative, common understandings, some alliances. That's one element is to focus focus more on the ethical uh, ethical content. The other side of it is I feel like oftentimes people in these different communities don't really get to know one another. And so I think civic engagement and collaborative practices of service, of good works in the community are a great way in which um, people can come to know one another and um, partner in the kind of work that we all need to be doing anyway and that often we are doing, but often in isolation. And if there are ways in which um, that can become more collaborative, I think we can forge much stronger bonds of alliance, cooperation, and solidarity that will overcome some of the qualms that people have about risking um, their, you know, their identitarian affiliation with their religion mm. for a more, you know, common ethical universalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I totally agree. Uh, I wanted to make sure before I let you go that uh, we could tell people where they can find you. Uh, you have two podcasts. And what's your Twitter again? Oh, uh, Twitter is just at uh, Adnan A. Hussein, one S-A-I-N. And um, people can look out for Guerrilla History, which is a podcast I co-host with two uh, others that is about uh, episodes of history and what we can learn from it for the activist global left today. And the other one is the Mudgeless, which means literally an assembly or a place of sitting. And it used to be the uh, seances of the learned. They would come together and have good conversation and dialogue. And so it seemed fitting uh, for uh, the title or name of a podcast dedicated to having good conversations and discussions about Islam, Muslims, uh, the Middle East and the Islamic world. Um, so you can check that out uh, as well. The Majlis, M-A-J-L-I-S. Cool. Actually, I, I also wanted to ask you, you're probably the first guest who might know what night, what a night rule actually is. Oh, I love the name. It's a great, it's great, a great name for a podcast. Hopefully so you, you do. Release them late at night uh, from yeah. Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, I believe it's Ob Oberon uh, says to Robin something about, you know, what night, what, uh, you know, night rule has been going on in this forest or something, something to that effect. And it's you a wonderful really... evocation of the um, carnivalesque, I think, you know, mm. the uh, traditions of misrule. You know, yeah. when you have a topsy-turvy totally. world of night revels and um, it reminds me very much of Rabelais and uh, his Gargantua and Pantagruel works um, about the kind of car carnivalesque and how there are constantly digressions off into body humor, the grotesque and so on. So I'm, I have high hopes for your podcast if you're tapping into that tradition. I hope I can. I hope I can. Burlesque and bodiness and, um, you know, disorder and, and misrule. I, I think it's great. These are all all uh, like very values I hold very dear. So yeah. hopefully I can hopefully I can achieve great things. Um, and of course, you also appear where I first saw you. Uh, and I, I love your work on The David Feldman Show. I did want to ask you, is it more satisfying to, to publish a new paper or to uh, to get that that raucous belly laugh out of David Feldman? 
Oh, definitely the belly laugh. I mean, look, nobody reads these articles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious. Uh, well, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. I, I knew I was looking forward to it for a long time. I knew it would be a really fascinating discussion. There's about a billion more topics I want to pick your brain on. So I won't pester you too much, but I will uh, I will try and get you back on sometime soon. And uh, And I look forward to that. I'm delighted to do it. I always enjoy our conversations.